Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Matthew chapter 23. Today, I want to conclude this January series, More Jesus in All of Me, as we talk about more Jesus in 2020. The last two weeks, we've considered a new year with more Jesus. And maybe you've heard this this year. This seems to be the little catchphrase that I'm hearing mostly this year. New year, new you. New year, new me. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but that's the one that I seem to be hearing most often. And there's a way in which that could be true if the new you that you're referring to in the new year is the right new you, right? But if it's just the new you you're recreating, you've probably already broken most of those resolutions. We're three weeks into January and already I feel like I'm completely out of context talking about a new year, right? Like, oh, that was the first week. We don't talk about that after the first week of the year, right? Because you've already wasted that gym money and and all that kind of stuff. How about this? How about New Year, more Jesus in all of me? That's what I want to leave us with this morning. I want to talk about the real new, the right new. I want to look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look on the screen with me and I'll share this one with you here. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us about the new that doesn't just begin at the new year, but begins with a new Lord. Therefore, it tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, the Bible teaches that when a person trusts in Jesus to receive salvation, they are made new completely and eternally. And the new that they are made, this new creation that Paul references in 2 Corinthians, is what God does in recreating us, redeeming us from sin It is a complete transformation of being. And as we've talked about over the last two weeks, that transformation is both complete when we are saved. At the moment that God saves us, at the believing and repenting of our sins, He saves us, our transformation is complete. And yet as long as we walk on the face of this earth, it is ongoing. It is a journey in which we are following Christ, what we would call sanctification. You see, salvation involves many changes, but the essence of salvation is that we are recreated by God, born again as new in Jesus. I want to pause here and ask us a question for each one of us. Have you been made new in Jesus? Friends, there will never be a more important question for you to answer and for you to gain absolute clarity about and to live in light of. Are you a new creation because of forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ? And if you're not, I'd love to talk with you right after the service, right after the service, just to pray with you and encourage you. Let me ask you this. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, what's new about you in Jesus Christ? 
What's new about you? And how do you now live in the new in which Christ has made you? More Jesus, this title of this message, but more importantly, if you will, the mantra of our worship as a church and our church life. It reminds us of this, that as a church, LifePoint labors to see more people come to saving faith in Jesus. That LifePoint labors to see more Jesus in increasingly and compelling ways among our whole church. And that LifePoint continually labors for each person to be transformed more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to leave you with today. This simple idea that Christ followers are made a new creation in Jesus Christ for the work of his kingdom through the gospel. Christ followers are made a new creation in Jesus Christ for the work of his kingdom through the gospel. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God into which we are being transformed. You see, it's not an individual only project, but it is what I would call a shared responsibility between each individual Christian and the church, the community of believers, the fellowship into which we place our life. And more like Jesus, we grow and we become in the character of our living out as we have been clothed by Jesus' righteousness in the character of our being. That's what this is all about. You see, the distinguishing character of Jesus Christ into which every believer has been redeemed forms the identity into which we are to understand our life and to walk. And so growth unto maturity by the gospel is everything for the Christ follower. Now what I'm going to share with you today is not going to be new to many of you. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so stinking familiar to some of you, you could teach it yourselves. And I'll tell you this, good, that's exactly what I'm aiming at here. That there wouldn't be anybody in this church who didn't understand this. Because to be quite honest, friends, this is, the very, this is much of the heart of what we are aiming at in all things as a church. And if you come to our covenant membership series and you want to learn more about what we're all about as a church, you're going to hear this again. You're going to hear it again. Because as the gospel takes root and as we proclaim the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, this is what God is doing in us. I want to offer to you today two realms and four domains of the Christ follower's identity in which each of us, as we are made new, grow and mature more and more into the image, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two primary teachings where we draw this teaching from today. And the first is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn there. If you don't, it will be on the screens. In Matthew chapter 22, I think I actually told you 23, didn't I? I apologize. It's Matthew 22, chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees. And verse 35 records one of them, a lawyer, actually ask him a question to test him. So Matthew gives us some insight into the purpose. And look at verse 37. The question is this, what is the great commandment in the law? 
In other words, he's trying to put Jesus into a corner so that they can trap him, thereby condemn him, accuse him, and then sentence him as they're wanting to do. And so they ask him, what is the great commandment in the law? Because they think he can pit one against the other. Verse 37, Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, when confronted by the religious leaders trying to condemn him with his own words, Jesus identifies the great and the first commandment as a comprehensive love for God. They didn't think he could do it. And yet, he blew everyone out of the water with what he offered to them. When Jesus identifies the great and first command of life as a comprehensive love for God, he does something that was already in the law, but the teachers of the law had not put two and two together, right? I mean, they had not gotten this, and Jesus had come to share this. What he said was he quoted Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, when he said, and the second is like it. In other words, the second great command of the whole law and the prophets is inseparably intertwined to the first that you love your neighbor as yourself. He adds it as a second, as a transformed outgrowth of the inward work of God. You see, the one who loves God as first and foremost in all of life will live to love others as themselves. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Now, if you feel a little awkward right now because you already know in the wholeness of your life you don't measure up, it's okay. You're in good company. None of us do. None of us do. But friends, listen. The great command of God is love. First and most for God and also to love others because of Him. This passage carries primary importance for understanding our life Because of the nature of the question, what is the great law? What is it in all of God's teaching that is first importance or priority for us? You see, we are called to obey, to live in obedience to God's commands. And while there are many commands in God's word, this command as set forth by the one who is the living word of God, taking on human flesh, forms the principal command for life. That God is love and those who love him obey his commands. John in his first epistle teaches this. And what Jesus is saying is he is teaching about the greatest command and how it is that that introduces us to the love of God. This first realm, if you will, in which we live. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if we want to show God how we love him, we obey his command. Listen, friends, the love of God is the first realm of new life for the Christ follower. At salvation, God brings you into his love, his love, perfect love. 
comprehensive love. Because love is God's motivation to save, it becomes our controlling motivation to live all of life for his name. Love is the realm of life for every Christ follower because God is love. And when we live in love, we live as God's beloved. Those who've had the love of God set upon them and live their life in true reflection of that love. Now, Jesus is teaching that our whole life must be consumed with loving God. Why? Because the way we love God is revealing to us of the way that God's love has permeated and pervaded all of our life. And so this introduces the first domain of a Christ follower's identity in the sphere of God's love. How is it that we live in God's love? but that we live as a worshiper. A worshiper, one who engages the heart to grow an all-consuming love for God. Listen, friends, when we love God, we live as a worshiper because we give to him first place in our whole life, beginning at the very center of our life. That's what the heart is, and that's why we engage the heart to grow an all-consuming love for God. The heart is the center of life. It's the place where the will, where the affections, and where the intellect merge to become one and form the whole of our being. And that's why it is the center of our relationship with God. That, that God gives to us a new heart and he inhabits that new heart in salvation. That's what the prophet Ezekiel chapter 36 teaches us. That, that the covenant that God makes is that if we will believe in him, he will replace the heart of stone that wants nothing to do with him with the heart of flesh that is soft, that is malleable, that is inhabitable. And in that heart, he will place his spirit to abide within us. And so this first domain shows how the gospel has its comprehensive power to bring life for all of life. That's what the gospel is so potent for us, friends. It's so unlike anything else in life. We can be moved, we can be stirred, we can be inspired, but in the gospel, we are resurrected to new life. Nothing else can do what only the gospel can do, for in the gospel, it speaks God's word of life for all of life. And so when the gospel is preached and it is heard, faith comes by the hearing of the gospel that we might believe in Jesus and receive what only he can give, but what he gives to all who call upon him. And so regardless of where the topic may begin, Regardless of what passage you may start in, the gospel speaks to the heart where the Christ follower's life is sourced to live in God's love for his glory. You see, friends, that's why a simple message of application, a simple three practices or to this or for that, it's not that the application is wrong, but it misses this. If it's not sourced from the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it lacks the power to change your life. And you can go through the motions all you want, but all you will find is that you are frustrated and exhausted yet again for trying to do in your own strength what God says, I want to do it in you and let you live me out of you. That's what the gospel does. 
And growth and maturity as a worshiper begins with loving God first and most. As the gospel works, what takes place? Well, this is the difficulty. This is the challenge. Because the first thing the gospel does is establishes Jesus as Lord. That's that's the proclamation of the gospel, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And immediately it confronts our heart through spirit-fueled conviction to identify the idols that are enthroned in our life, the things that we cherish and treasure most, to identify the false hopes that we have and the things that the world has promised and, and other people have promised and what we believe it can provide for us and those things that we have given our life to. And in each moment or at each point of conviction, we become confronted by the hearing of the gospel in the sin in which we've walked and the sin that is destroying us, simultaneously being reminded of God's love that we might turn from that sin and those idols and false hopes and repent to trust in him. Friends, in the gospel, we replace all of our prior loves with a greater love, Jesus, who is our greater hope. You see, friends, this is growth and this is maturity. Growth is the process of being able to, in the conviction of the Spirit by the gospel of Jesus Christ, in those moments, in those points, in those areas of our life, in those relationships, situations, circumstances, whatever the case may be, we grow when we come to identify and realize where our life has put a second Lord on a throne. And in that knowledge, we have At that point of conviction, a decision to make. Will we repent and turn, dethrone a false idol, and rightly enthrone Jesus? Or will we refuse him and allow the false idol to remain? Growth is the learning through that conviction. Maturity only comes when we put Jesus where he is rightfully worthy to be on the throne. On the throne. See, we can grow a lot, but we only grow up when Jesus is ruling. And that's what we're learning. That all happens in this realm of love when we take the lesser idols, the lesser goods of life, and we put Jesus on the throne as our greater and greatest love. But this inward shift in the motive of why we live and why we do what we do can be a very difficult transition because self does not die easily. Self, as the supreme love of life, will not just lay down and go, okay, you're right. It must be removed and replaced with Jesus. And sometimes we can be our own worst enemy, right? And I mean that in the self way. Colossians 3 chapter 1 gives us a pattern in order to pursue Jesus as our greater love. He says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. I like the New International Version's interpretation of that phrase a little better where it says, set your heart on things above. They're both saying the same thing. Seek the things that are above or set your heart. The reason I like set your heart is because it tells us that we must take our heart where we find it in sin by the Spirit's conviction and put it in the righteousness that we know God has placed upon us. We have to 
steer the heart where Jesus resides. Seek the things that are above. Where is that? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, friends, the heart holds what it is that we are treasuring most. And you know what conviction does? It just gives us a little bit of insight into our heart where we're treasuring something other than God as worthy as God. But the heart is also shaped and steered by that which we seek most and first. Jesus says it is what defiles a person is uh, excuse me what defiles a person is what comes out of the heart because of what has filled them not just what goes in. And this is why we are commanded to fill our hearts with more Jesus. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says Keep your heart with all vigilance. In other words, don't let anything thwart you from keeping your heart because from it flows the springs of life. Colossians 3.15 will go on to later tell us, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. In other words, not just, okay, I'll let it, but in other words, with verse 1 that says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and let the peace of God rule. Don't stop seeking until peace is ruling. That's what Paul is teaching us as the pattern here because what consumes the heart is not consuming it by happenstance, but it reveals what we've sought first and most. Christ followers fill our heart with Jesus by an intentional act because he and he alone is our life. The one priority of life, this is one thing, friends, one thing for the Christ follower is to live in God's love by engaging your heart, the very center of your life, to grow in all-consuming love for his glory because God has made you new as his worshiper in Jesus Christ. Christ. That's beautiful. It's powerful, friends. And today, as the Spirit places His conviction upon some area, some situation or circumstance, some belief, some practice that you may have, and brings the light of God's truth to show you the sinfulness of, of where you have walked and what you have believed. Friends, your job today is not to change your heart about that matter. Your job today is to seek Christ first in that matter. Let him change your heart. We've got too many Christians unworried about walking in according to God's truth and too consumed with thinking they can change their heart. Only God changes the heart. But he will change every heart that invites him to come in by faith. Love received and love lived in Here's what Jesus is saying is love shared because true love is never received and not shared. And this provides for us the second domain of the Christ follower's identity. When we live, as, when we live in God's love, we not only live as worshipers growing in all-consuming love for him, but we live as a servant. People who engage our hands to serve others in Jesus' name as the very expression of our life. Now, hands here represent what we do, the good deeds of our life, the way that we minister, the way that we serve other people. But it also represents something far more than just the what of our doing, but the how we do all that we do in order to glorify God. 
You see, hands represent the comprehensive expression of life, both in our actions, but also in our attitude, in our acts of service, but also the spirit in which we perform those acts of service. That's what Jesus is putting together in this response to the Pharisees when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors as yourself. He's teaching us what it means to live in the realm of God's love, that our whole life is given to love God and to be consumed by the new heart and the new life and the new spirit that only he can give, but also in the true nature of that love that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ to live so that that love is shared with every person for which we encounter. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 tells us, for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's never been a person more worthy to only be served and never have to lift a finger for himself to do anything. And yet that's the complete opposite way that Jesus came. In complete humility and obedience to the Father, he came to live as a servant. You see, servant forms the cumulative expression of life because in it we are living in God's love who came to serve us as we humble ourselves to serve others. Living as a servant is how we share the glory of God's love to all people of the world. It, it is the greatest demonstration of transformation. And, and it, is, it is most palpable by how it is that our inward relationship with God determines the outward expression of how we share his love with other people. Jesus says, let people see your good deeds. Not so they'll glorify you, but so they will see your good deeds and give glory to God who is in heaven. That's what it means to live as a servant. We do not serve others, friends, because we see great need. Did you hear me? I want you to understand this. Christians do not perform acts of service because we see great need in the world. Let me tell you something. If great need drove us and motivated us, we would all be dead from exhaustion. Because in a broken world, we will never answer every need. We serve because we are controlled by love. Great need steers us and it informs us. Do not hear me saying that it's inconsiderable it steers us and informs us in where and how we can address those needs but listen we serve for one reason and one reason alone and that's because we've been so incredibly loved that we can't not serve we serve because we are compelled to pour out our lives as he came to pour out his life for us and friends, if you're being motivated or driven by any other motivation to serve, let me tell you, exhaustion is the only end that you will find. And that exhaustion will bring you to a place where you've accomplished far less than you thought you needed to. You will never be satisfied by the goals and the steps that you've actually advanced in. 
because you will only see greater need in front of you. Instead of resting in what God wants to do through the life that you've offered, doing all that you can and all that he's called you to do and trusting the rest to him. Trusting the rest to him. You see, the relationship between our life as a worshiper engaging the heart and our life as a servant engaging the hands is essential to faith, faithfully applying Jesus' teaching in this passage. For when we live in the realm of love as worshipers, we draw from our relationship with Jesus to live as servants in the way that we show and share God's love. Let me tell you, trying to live as a servant in your own strength will actually overwhelm trying to live as a worshiper. Because you'll go do everything and exhaust yourself and you'll forsake even the very source from which you claim to be drawing your relationship with the Lord. But living as a worshiper tells you, you know what? You've done enough. It's time to go home and rest because you need Jesus as much as they do. And so you will Sabbath, you will rest regularly, intentionally in the love of God to remind yourself of why it is that you went and exhausted yourself in serving nonetheless. You need the balance of what it means to live in God's love. To love him first and to love others because he loved you in the way he did. When, when we live in relationship with God in Jesus Christ, it fuels this expression of our life to live in love, both in what we do and in how we do it towards all other people. Now, if you want to know how well you're living in God's love, let me just give you some questions to evaluate yourself. I'm not evaluating you. This is something that I would encourage you to answer in your own heart and life before the Lord and let him speak to you. First and foremost, are you forgiving others as you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ? Are you giving forgiveness the way you've received forgiveness? Are you seeking the good of others, even above and often at your own sacrifice for your own good? Or only when it's convenient, when it's easy? Are you celebrating others' successes, or do you begrudge them because it was not your own success, or you've not yet reached that level, that limit, that extent, whatever the case may be? Are you waiting or looking for a compelling cause to serve? One that really zings you, you know, one that really seems to be what you need to tie into, that, that matches your gifting, that matches your skill, that matches your knowledge. Are you waiting and looking for that? Or are you living your life serving simply because God's love has compelled you to love other people by serving? When Christ followers live in God's love as worshipers and servants, we live to tell the world about Jesus Christ with our whole life. And somebody can look at you from afar and God receives glory from it because what he is doing in you and through you. Now the second principle passage from which we glean our identity in the Christian life is known as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. I invite you to turn there in your Bible. It will also be on the screen. Matthew chapter 28. Verses 18 to 20, these are Christ's words just before he ascends into heaven. And he says this, 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the Great Commission introduces us to the second domain of uh, the Christ follower's new life, and that is the truth of God. In the first domain, we learn to live in God's love. In the second domain, we learn to walk in God's truth. Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples. But the fact of the matter is, friends, from the whole counsel of God, we know this, only God makes a disciple. What is Jesus telling us to do? Is it an impossible command that he has given to us? Or do we need to understand how to do what he is asking us to do. You see, Jesus gives his authority to his disciples. Don't miss where 18, verse 18 begins. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. You know what Jesus says? He says, I'm Lord. I'm Lord. If somebody has a problem with that, just direct them to me. I'm Lord. Therefore, because he is Lord, go and make disciples. He gives his authority to his disciples to labor in his work of making what only he can do, disciples. And we do that by sharing the gospel, by identifying believers with him through the practice of baptism and by teaching them his truth. Our whole life is a matter of being taught the truth of God's word. And so first we must understand that Jesus speaks to his disciples. We need to know who Jesus is talking to here. And so that gives us that third aspect of our identity. When we walk in God's truth, we live as a disciple who is engaging the mind to walk in God's truth by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is speaking to here. Not just the crowds at large, but those who were genuine followers of his And as a follower, they were his disciples. A disciple walks in the truth of God's word by faith out of the motivation of love that we've already looked at. In order to grow in what I call the authenticity of life by gospel renewal. In other words, as the layers of sin in our life are peeled away by the conviction and the redeeming work of the gospel and we are being sanctified into his image, we are finding that genuineness of what life in Christ is really about here and now in this life. And it is a life of godliness for which we have been redeemed. Now, the, word, the meaning of this word disciple is all too familiar to us as a church, as Christians in general. It's all too familiar, but its familiarity has actually been the biggest problem with our understanding. The true meaning of this word is formed by two words. And they're two words that are brought together to form an entirely new meaning. The first part of that is learner. Now, we know what learner is. We engage the mind for new data, new information, right? New calculations, whatever the case may be. We are learners. We gain new data. But it also holds in it the understanding of follower. We do. We do. And when learner and follower come together, They make a whole new expression known as disciples. And so disciples learn God's truth. And by faith, we trust Jesus to follow him or obey because he is Lord. You see, only knowing the truth but not obeying is a false disciple. 
I don't care how well you argue the theological nuances of all the treatises of history and of the scriptures. If you're not doing God's word, you're not a disciple of Jesus. That's why James warns us, do, uh, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Half a disciple is a false disciple. It's true on the other side too. If you're a doer without an understanding, if you're one who acts to mimic the command without trusting, that's a false disciple as well. A disciple seeks the transformation of life by learning the truths of God's word in order to follow Jesus in obedience by faith out of love for him. That's the only way to walk in God's truth. If we're not motivated by his love, we cannot walk in his truth. And what we do and say and all of those things may look a lot like his truth. But it's genuinely only the light of his life when it's done by faith. Listen to me, friends. Love fuels our obedience and obedience compounds our love. For Jesus, that's where maturity, that's where the transformation of the gospel comes about. When the light comes on, you go, oh my goodness, I see what God was talking about when he convicted me the other day. In the silence of the heart, you just see change, all of the bloom. Life comes, God forgive me. For now I see, I understand how you want me to live. Friends, living as a disciple begins with the mind. Colossians also gives a pattern for the mind to follow. In verses 2 and 3, he says not only seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he says set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As a disciple engages the mind, transformation begins to materialize by the renewal of our thinking in order to obey by faith because of the gospel. Not alongside or, or uh, in some way disconnected, but because of the gospel. This is what Colossians says here. He says, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God Paul goes on to exhort the Philippians, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put the gray matter on it and press it in until it gets into you. Think about these things and what you have learned and received and seen in me. Listen to this. Practice these things. You want to know why you need biblical community? Because otherwise you're not going to learn it. You're not going to receive it. You're not going to hear it. And you're not going to see it so that you can practice it. But when you do, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you see how it is that when we walk in the light of God's truth, the love of God in which we know him compounds within us? It's not one versus the other, it's both. And a disciple consumes the mind with God's truth to rule all of life from love to action. And Colossians tells us as well, as it says in verse 2 of chapter 3, to set your minds on things above 
Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do not stop putting your mind on the word until it becomes so rich in you that its aroma just resonates, that, that, that you can feel it in your bones. Fill your mind with God's truth and live in community to learn it and practice it. And as you walk in the truth, you'll live in love. There is no living in God's love without walking in truth. Don't think you have a relationship with God, but you're not worried about obedience. You're deceiving yourself. A disciple consumes the mind with the truth of God's word as we learn and immerses their life in obeying it to practice what it teaches at all times. Now, the key to walking in God's truth as a disciple is that dying to self, as Luke 9.23 outlines for it. Look at the screen. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Friends, following Jesus begins by denying self. Denying self does not mean to die. You can't die for yourself. Jesus has already died for you. But denying yourself means not to die for self, but to die to self so that you can live for him. Denying self is what Paul means in Romans 12 too when he says that we are living sacrifices. It is the practice of walking in the light of God's truth for his transformation. And when you walk in God's truth by faith, the decisions you make, the schedule you keep, the activities you participate in, the people with it, which you embrace and you fellowship and the way you raise your children, every area of life is informed and empowered by the word of God out of faith. You see, the priority of life is to live in God's love and the principal practice of life for the Christ follower is to walk in God's truth by engaging your mind for gospel renewal by the word. That leads to reconciliation and that leads us to what God gives us in reconciliation. When we walk in God's truth, we live as the fourth aspect of our identity, a missioner who engages the feet to share the gospel and to make disciples of all people of the world. The renewal taking place within the Christ follower as a disciple and applying the gospel as we live it out leads to telling others about Jesus as a missioner, a faithful witness. Our work is to be a faithful witness, but our work is dependent upon our lives being freed from any hindrance. This is the aspect of living as a faithful witness in the world. You see, one who has the, is, is Lord, the one who is the Lord of all sets us free from sin. That's what the gospel teaches us. And he is also the one who authorizes us to go to every nation to declare our freedom in him. That's why Peter and John in the book of Acts stood in front of the Sanhedrin and said, you do what you've got to do if you have to kill us or beat us. But we can't not share the gospel. Why? Because the one who is Lord of all commissioned us to do this. That's why Lottie Moon that I kept talking about back in December said this. I know that I am immortal until my work on earth for the Lord is done. Because God shods our feet with the gospel of peace. And it releases us. Sets us at liberty to go and to live confidently in his lordship. Obeying him regardless of what else may come. The essence of the Great Commission is that we live under Jesus' lordship who sends us into the world and authorizes us to share the gospel of his 
kingdom. Look at what Romans chapter 10 verses 13 through 15 reveals about the pattern of a missioner's gospel conviction. That's why we have to engage our feet, friends. Look, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's actually the last statement of what he's just taught in the prior uh, pericope. But in verse 14, he says this, but how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe if they never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written by the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why are feet beautiful? Because they represent our whole life that has been cut loose from the entanglement and the ensnarement and the enslavement of sin to live in the kingdom of God for his purposes in all things to declare the freedom that only he can give. Missioners live so that all of life is brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ to take the gospel to all people of the world. We don't have to wait to be invited. We're compelled by love that sends us. We don't have to navigate by means of security, preference, comfort, because Lord is the Lord of all is our authorization. That's why the armor of God shards our feet with the peace that comes from the gospel. Have you been released from everything in life that holds you back from sharing the gospel so that you can share with others freely? That's what we do. We live ready. To take the gospel to every person, knowing that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. As a worshiper, a servant, disciple, and missioner, Christ followers are made new in Jesus Christ for the work of his kingdom through the gospel. Would you pray with me?